You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Habercroft. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me in Southampton, England, is Jonathan Havercroft. And Jonathan, I am excited to present the story that we have today. Yes, we've been working on this for a while. Yeah, so you came to me with kind of the concept of this episode. You just messaged me one day and said, hey, in 1991, the U.S. Women's National Championship team came from Houston, Texas. There has to be a story there. And my goodness, was there. Yeah, so it's, I mean, a couple of things. A, is a team from Houston, Texas, that's going to be a story for sure. And I think the reason part of it resonates with both of us is that it was an early arena curling club. So you know, in contemporary U.S. curling, the idea that an arena club team could win a national championship is unthinkable. But sure enough, an arena club team did back in 1991. Yeah, and this team came together kind of spur of the moment. We'll let them tell their story, but uh, we are very thankful that we were able to connect with all four members of the 1991 championship team to get their perspective and their memories of their incredible run to a national championship. We are releasing this to coincide with the 30th anniversary of that championship. They captured the U.S. title on March 9th, 1991. So without further ado, here is the story of that team that went from the Galleria to the gold at the USA Curling National Championships. The growth of curling in the United States can, in large part, be contributed to the rise of the so-called arena clubs. They're groups of curlers who play the game on multi-purpose ice sheets that they share with figure skaters and hockey players who leave deep cuts in the ice. These curling clubs are usually located in non-traditional curling areas. The intrepid members of these groups typically have to deal with the least desired playing times and always have to deal with ice conditions that, at best, could be described as not ideal. But these curlers show up week in and week out, prep the ice as quickly as they can, as soon as the Zamboni exits the rink, they set out the rocks, and they spend the next couple of hours playing a game that they love. Those who curl on skating ice will occasionally allow themselves a moment to channel their inner Don Quixote and dream the impossible dream, that someday they could go from their unlevel, frosty, marked up ice and step onto a pristine sheet in an arena filled with 12,000 people with their country's name on their back. For those who curl on dedicated curling sheets in curling's traditional heartlands, this dream probably seems far-fetched, if not laughable. Except it happened. Rocks Across the Pond is proud to bring you the incredible story of the 1991 United States Women's Curling National Champions from the Curling Club of Houston. 
My name is Brenda Gray. I'm from Denton, Texas, and I was lead on the 1991 championship team. My name is Janet Hunter. I'm from Austin, Texas, and I was the second on the 1991 women's national team. My name is Judy Johnston. My husband and I lived in Irving, Texas, and played third or vice skip. I'm Maymar Gemmel. I live now in Blind River, Ontario, and I was the skip of the 1991 United States women's curling champion who went to Winnipeg for the Worlds. When it fully opened in 1970, Houston's Galleria Mall had a unique feature. On the ground floor, under the glass barrel vault atrium that was modeled after the Galleria in Milan, Italy, was an ice rink. According to the Houston Chronicle, it was the first of its kind for an American mall. This rink, surrounded in 1991 by over 1.5 million square feet of pure, uncut American consumerism, is where the Curling Club of Houston met every Sunday morning. It was a, a fun club. You had to get up at 8 o'clock in the morning on Sunday morning and drive down to the Galleria, and then they had to prepare the ice, and it was Zambonied, and then they pebbled it. And uh, we had a scoreboard that they put on, and then they brought the rocks out on a sort of a trolley, for, and it was the rocks were stored in a warm cupboard. The guys would hand the rocks over the sideboards, and they put them on the ice, and immediately they'd melt in. They would etch concentric circles in the ice and take felt-tip markers and, and try to color in the etched lines. The ice was, it was tough. I mean, it was really, really heavy. We only had a handful of ladies in the club at the time because it took somebody pretty strong. It took a woman pretty strong to get the rock just down the sheet of ice. It was regulation size except around Christmas time because they would erect a big Christmas tree on one end of the, of the skating rink. And so during those times, we had to shorten it up quite a bit. Most of the curlers in the Houston Curling Club at the time were transplanted northerners, and they were just real excited to have any kind of ice to curl on. Um, as, they, as they gathered steam, they were able to recruit local people that were just fascinated by the sport and, and later became members. Pretty much the only spectator, since all the stores were closed, is there was a very nice hotel there in the shopping center, and some hotel guests would come out and wander around and, and try to figure out what it was we were doing on the ice and would ask us questions about it. Because in 91, hardly anybody, particularly in the South, knew about curling. Among this motley crew of committed curlers was Maymar Gemmel and her husband Al, originally from Canada they had moved to Houston for work in 1988. Despite living in Houston, Maymar Gemmel was still actively playing in Canada thanks to the free flights she had received from Al's work. In fact, while living in Houston, Maymar and her team from Ontario were senior Canadian champions in 1990. But in 1991, her Canadian seniors team was knocked out in her regional playdowns and her dreams of back-to-back -back seniors titles came to an end. That's when Al Gemmel's wheels started turning. Because a World Seniors Curling Championship did not exist in 1991, Maymar hadn't stepped onto the ice in a Team Canada uniform. 
And since curling was not officially part of the Olympic program yet, rules weren't as strict on who was eligible in the United States. That meant that as a U.S. resident, she was eligible to play in the U.S. playdowns. No, not the U.S. senior playdowns, but the playdowns to determine the United States national champion. So I came back to um, uh, Houston, and that was the end of my competitive curling for that year. I came back to Houston. In the meantime, Al had been a couple of times up to Denver with a, a bunch of team of men, and they had curled competitively up there. And he said to me, I think you should go try the Nash, uh, try to get to nationals at Denver and go play in the regions. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and so he said, well, I'll get you a team, and away we go. So we did. So Judy lived in Dallas. Um, Janet lived in Austin and Brenda and I lived in, in um, Houston. I had girls with Neymar quite a bit. So she and I weren't strangers. Didn't know the, I didn't know Brenda and I didn't know Janet. We had driven down to Houston a couple of times to curl with Alan Neymar in their league, their Sunday morning league in the Galleria. But I, we did not curl in Dallas. This opportunity arose. And we thought, well, okay, we'll give her a go. It was Al who contacted me. He was putting the team together, and I had played, I guess, against Brenda. Uh, she was a, a league member. So I, I knew her, did not really know Maymar, and certainly didn't know Judy. So it was, you know, it was an interesting patchwork. I was game for more curling, and I knew of Maymar's experience. Thought it'd be a great opportunity to curl with her. Even if she hadn't been experienced, I would have gone anyway. I hadn't played competitively for a long time. So I was I was up for a, a weekend of curling <laughs> and a trip to Denver. Maymar, the skip, and Al, who was president of the, the curling club at that time, they came to me and they said, would you be interested in going up to Denver? Um, and curling with Maymar and a team that she's going to put together. And I said, I would love to because I still have friends in the Denver Curling Club. And what a thrill to be able to curl on some true curling ice. So no, we had not curled together at all. By putting on his general manager hat, Al Gimmel set in motion what would become one of the most remarkable stories in curling history. The first stop for this quickly assembled team would be their regional playdown. In those days, participants at the USA Curling National Championships were determined by region, with each sending a representative to nationals. There, the team from Houston would take on teams from Omaha and Denver that included the defending national champion, Bev Banky. But before her team could try to dethrone the national champ, Maymar had the minor formality of actually introducing her teammates to each other. Then it was time to hit the ice and see what they could do as a foursome. I, I always remember the person who picked us up uh, when I was at the airplane, and I'm introducing my team to the other members of my team as we're getting off the plane and, and waiting for our luggage. And I remember him looking at us and thinking, they don't even know each other, you know, which we... Which, we laughed about it later because, you know, how many teams meet and don't know each other? Not too many. Yes, we, we did start out slow. 
because like I said, we hadn't curled together before and we didn't have that much experience. Um, Denver has its own club, so they get to curl pretty much whenever they want regularly. And, and Omaha has their own curling club. Um, and so we got there and we started into the round robin. We started pretty slow. I, I can't tell you the details of any of the games, but, um, the longer we played together, the more we gelled and the more we got used to the ice. The, the muscle memory kicks in. So you can, you can know you can still throw a rock, but the finesse, delicate adjustments to weight were kind of not there and just, just learning each other's deliveries. You know, everybody did not throw the same way. We hadn't been coached to everybody's have the same release and um uh, it's funny you know i think if i knew then what i know now it would have been much more interesting <laughs> however uh um i guess you know i have thrown rocks in houston a couple of times and there was an opportunity to get do some practicing in denver before the playdown started so you know, muscle memory kicks in, and it it does come back. So, uh, it's obviously nobody was curling a hundred percent, or but you you to come close in a lot of shots wasn't too bad. We had nothing to lose. Of course, you you never go to you never go to a competition without wanting to win. Yeah, we wanted to win. We got into it. It was, we rose to the, the competition. We were playing against uh, a national team, uh, a former national, you know, champion team up there. You know, after you, you win a few and you're going and you're in your final play, we had bonded by the semifinal game for sure. I think we were really, we were going, yes, we are going to win this. How were you guys able to bond that quickly just, just over the weekend like that? There was just a camaraderie, you know, it was a good spirit. I think we were pretty light-spirited when we went up there. There were some uh, other Houston teammates there. You know, they were certainly rooting for us. And I think that really helped, helped us to all feel we were the Houston club. Bev Banky's team was really good. They really put us to the test. And uh, I think that after... We beat them, being the defending national champions. That really empowered us in a sense that we felt we could, we were ready to go on to the next level. The teams departed Denver, knowing that the next time they would see each other would be on the ice at the USA Curling National Championships in Utica, New York. There would be no team practices, but that was the least of their worries. To get to Utica, for the week-long nationals, Brenda and Janet would have to get time off work. But first, they would have to explain to their bosses in Texas what curling was. Fortunately, the owner of the company, my boss, was a big sports fan, and he was very intrigued with this idea of, of curling. And so I got back, and, and uh, I said, well, we won. And he said, well, that's fantastic. And I said, yeah, now I need an, an, a week off because we're going to be going to New York in two or three weeks for the national championships. And he, he was excited and he said, okay, that's great. Did he have any idea what curling was before you told him about all this? No. 
No, no idea whatsoever. Well, first of all, I had to explain what curling was, and there was a lot of joking and so on, but I had a very deadline-focused job, and, and it was a little difficult to get time off in a two or three weeks to take a, to take a week off. But I had to take my work with me in the mornings. I was faxing material back to my office once I got to Utica. I'd come back from the games at night, and there would be things waiting for me. That was before email, so everything was done by fax, and I'd have to deal with some documents that had been sent to me, look at them overnight, fax them back the next morning before we went off to our games. So uh, they didn't cut me any slack. It was not like going to national ice skating or softball or hockey or whatever. Curling, you know, what does that matter? Thank goodness the Olympics has given curling some respect. (laughs) The team from Texas was certainly not the favorite when they arrived in Utica. But they weren't about to be shy and reserved about it. Instead, they brought a brand of Texas swagger that curling in the U.S. hadn't seen before. And the locals loved it. So we went home and we had red satin jackets made up with the state of Texas on the back. And we arrived in Utica, New York, wearing our jackets and black cowboy hats. And in the meantime, USCA is really excited because there's a team from Texas. We went up there with all the Texas swag and we had cowboy hats and red jackets and oh my goodness. But the USCA was really excited because they thought, oh boy, we're not just a northern sport anymore. It's in the South too. First of all, we knew it was bizarre that a Texas team was heading to nationals. The first team ever from the South. The humor was not lost on us. And I think we played that up with chili peppers in the logo on our jackets, and we wore Western hats, and we arrived in Utica with maybe a certain Texas swagger. But once we went on the ice, we were dead serious. I think we were very full of confidence. Maymar doesn't compete to lose. Well, none of us do, but we made the most of of it. We knew we we had a certain reputation, but we figured people expected the worst from us, and we were going to surprise them. Well, we were certainly a curiosity. Uh, Everybody was interested in hearing our story, and we're fascinated by the fact that we only played two hours a week, and it was on skating ice. We referred to it back then as skating ice, not arena ice. Um, So we were a curiosity among the rest of the teams. We arrived, and we were totally embraced by the members of the curling club, our hosts, and we developed quite a little fan club. They ended up having t-shirts made up supporting the Texas team and and they would wear hats and and they were always visible and cheering loudly when, uh, when we were out on the ice. However, that swagger quickly gave way to the fact that the team hadn't practiced since their regional triumph in Denver. We started out real slow, and I I think our lack of experience on the ice and our lack of playing together was one of the main reasons why we would start out slow. Um, But as we got into a game, you know, we would begin to make shots. We would begin to gel. Our hosts were the Clarks. They were wonderful. I think at the end, we felt they should have been honorary Houston club members, uh, just terrific people. And we had wonderful times with them driving to the games. If we lost, they commiserated with us. Don't think we had too many losses. (laughs) um, They helped 
helped us to bond. Well, you know, we were very relaxed. We weren't supposed to be there. Um, and, and we were just happy to have the opportunity to, to play in Utica. And we didn't have any expectations about, about doing real well. As opposed to other teams coming in, you know, I'm sure they had their goals and, and they were for, focusing on their goals, but we were just incredibly relaxed. We were pretty social group. We were, you know, we were out socializing with, with uh, the club members and just stayed really relaxed the entire week. And I think that helped us come from behind in some of those games and maybe some of the other teams tensed up a little bit because they had different expectations. Um, different goals, but we were just, you know, we were just thrilled to be there. Perhaps, you know, halfway through, we said, we can do this. We enjoyed each other's company. We played hard. We, we worked hard, folks, but we just, we really wanted it. I think we wanted to show everyone there that a Southern team could come from behind and win. The team came together. They had a leader in Maymar who knew how to get the best out of her teammates on the ice. Off the ice, they sang songs in the car to and from the rink, and as they bonded, the wind started to come. Towards the end of the round robin, the teams found themselves with a chance to make the three-team playoff. To get there, they had to beat a team from Washington State skipped by Sharon Good, who had won the national championships in 1987. Texas entered the final end tied, but they had the hammer the last shot of the end. With that last shot, Maymar navigated two guards that were set staggered in front of the house with a shot that was just light enough to curl around them and just heavy enough to remove the Washington stone and give Texas the victory. With a 5-3 record in the round robin, Texas would face North Dakota in the semifinal with the winner playing Wisconsin in the final. Texas fell behind quickly against North Dakota, but made a valiant comeback. They trailed by two in the last end, but managed to score three to make the final. Waiting for them in the final was Wisconsin, who did not lose in the round robin. That team was skipped by Lisa Schonenberg, who had represented the United States at the 1988 Calgary Olympics, when curling was a demonstration sport. And she was expected to win her first USA curling championship. After 1991, Schonenberg would go on to win three of the next five national championships, as well as two silver medals at Worlds, and again represent the U.S. at the 1998 Olympics in Nagano, Japan, the first time curling was officially part of the full Olympic program. Schonenberg was destined for the USA Curling Hall of Fame, and her teammates included Lori Mountford, another USA Curling Hall of Fame member, and Erica Brown, who's played in three Olympics and is destined to join Schonenberg and Mountford in the U.S. Hall, too. It was a daunting task facing the Texas foursome. Wisconsin had the talent and all the access to practice ice, but they had something else that Texas lacked, and that was the burden of expectations. And the three other members of the team all insisted that they had something else that gave them an advantage in that game. They had Maymar Demel. She, she was lights out. And it was that leadership that really took us to those heights. And I, she had a really good way of of keeping us focused um, because we could tend to be unfocused because like I said, we were just, we were just thrilled to be able to get to each one of these competitions. Um, But she knew when we, when she needed to get us focused and, and what it meant. And like I said, she was a Supreme shot maker and, and pulled us out numerous times. (laughs) 
last rock dropped for three to win in the uh, the semifinal game. Yeah, down five nothing, and we came back. Neymar is very positive and hard. She's a hard worker and she's smart. Um, she's I don't know, she's just my my good friend. I'm going to use the term, which is kind of trite and probably overused, but I honestly was in the zone that week. Not, nothing, nothing could have bothered me. You know, I, I mean, they could have dropped a bomb beside me and I wouldn't have known. You know, it just was, was just one of those things where you look down the ice, you knew what was coming at you. You look down the ice, you knew what you had to throw. And, I, and it happened. Wisconsin, you know, the skip of the Wisconsin rank, actually she went on the following year to skip the U.S. championship team. So they were expected to come in and win. You know, I I think back and my image of them was coming in with their game faces on. They, you know, they came to win. Um, We didn't see too much of them during the week. Um, They did come out of the round robin in first place. So, So our championship game, we started out behind, as we always did, and uh, we were relaxed, and we slowly were catching up. We were coming home without the hammer, and um, Maymar, as she did so often, made her last shot, forcing the Wisconsin skip to make her last shot. I had to make the shot, and I, I, I do remember the shot. I absolutely do. I, when I, you guys called me, I thought... I, I can see that shot today. Picture the center line, and it's coming home, like coming towards me. Picture the center line. On the left-hand side were a couple of guards, okay? And there was something on the right-hand side uh, which really wasn't of much importance. And she had two on the forefoot. One, actually, I think was biting the button. And they were sort of sitting at us a way that, I said to Judy, if I come down and if I hit this rock on the left-hand side of the rock, if I hit it there, I can make them both go away. And I did. I had to, it wasn't a big, it wasn't a tough port to get through or anything, but I got through and I hit it. And then I rolled a little bit behind cover. So now I'm sitting in front of the button and I'm behind cover with these two rocks that were out front on the uh, left-hand side. So I went down and threw it, and then I'm standing there. We didn't have last rock again, and I'm standing there, and uh, Judy was just talking to me and saying, nice shot, and so on, and I said, we've just won this thing. And she said, "Uh, well, they still have another rock. And I said, yeah, I know, but look at their faces. And I was sort of into people and, you know, all the rest of it, and they were just... They were just blown away by the shot, and they thought, how can we beat that? So she had to draw down and get a good piece of the forefoot, a good piece of the forefoot. And uh, she was heavy. Now, and, and as I say, that's the end of the story. <laughs> when it was over, and I can't remember the lady's name. She wrote for the uh, U.S. magazine at the time, the U.S. newspaper. And she said to me, "Did you talk? To, have you talked to your husband? Because there was all kinds of buzzing going on afterwards, you know." And I said, "Yes." And what did he say? And I won't say it on air, but <laughs> he just could not believe it. Oh my gosh! 
total total disbelief. I mean, I have I have a picture that that somebody in in the group of fans took a picture of the expression on our four faces as we were standing in the house and we saw we saw that that Wisconsin miss. It was incredulous. Yeah, it was amazing. I I, I look on it as a Cinderella time, really, Ryan. Um, you know the. <laughs> Um, you went, you went to the ball, but you didn't expect to come home with a, with a, with a medal. One of the things that really stands out for me was after we won, the bagpipers came out on the ice and played. I'm getting all teary about this right now. The bagpiper came out and played the Yellow Rose of Texas. And that was so sweet. And so, so it was very special for us. The euphoria of their astonishing triumph in the final would later be tempered by what lay next on the horizon. Their win meant that they would head to the World Championships in Winnipeg, Manitoba. As if representing their country wasn't enough pressure, their finish at the World Championships would help determine if the USA qualified for the 1992 Olympics in Albertville, France, where curling would again be a demonstration sport. The U.S. Championships ended on March 9th, and the Worlds were scheduled to begin on March 23rd. By the time the team would return home to Texas, they wouldn't have much time to prepare before turning around and leaving for Worlds. This group of curlers from a mall in Texas the youngest of whom was 38, would also now have the burden of pressure for the first time during their journey. They would go up against the best in the world with Team USA emblazoned on their uniforms. Uniforms that both figuratively and literally were meant for someone else. We won nationals, and then it was almost like the dog that was chasing its tail and caught it <laughs> at least for me it's like oh dear now we have to go to the worlds <laughs> and we need to practice and a lot has to happen before we can go there and you know i'm not sure of the the usa curling attitude towards us winning um it was interesting because they knew that we would be representing the U.S. and we would be, go- be going home and we had no ice to practice on. Um, and the fact that none of us were U.S. citizens. And, and I'm, I'm not sure that that was talked about behind closed doors. I'm not sure that too many people were aware of it. But the fact is that we were all Canadian citizens and we had won the U.S. championship. Well, at the banquet, and I can still remember this, in Utica, when what was all over and done with, one of the people from the USCA came up and said to me, you've got to perform well for the United States so we don't get, he didn't use the word relegated, but we don't, I think I think they couldn't end up less than eighth, and we certainly ended up at the bottom of the heap. So um, that sat with me, and I I told I told Steve Brown, and I also told our fifth Susan, and they just said, "Oh, just ignore him." That was hard to ignore. I'll, I'll have to tell you, it was hard to ignore. And um, but other than other than that, um, I think 
realistically, if they had all sat down, they would have said, well, this team's not going to do anything, you know, but, but they'd never, except for that one incident, they never said, I never heard from anybody else, you know, and like I say, Steve Brown was great. You know, he was very supportive when we were there. At that time, the U.S. Curling Federation was not nearly as well organized and um, supportive as it is now. I, you know, I think they had expected Wisconsin to win, and so suddenly they're dealing with these ladies in red jackets and sessions. And um, so it was a little, little bit dicey because, because of the fact that none of us were U.S. citizens, uh, they were quite concerned that we we could not go to the Olympics as U.S. reps. And so they they were very concerned about our standings at the end because you had to you had to have a certain ranking to go from the world to Olympics, but you know, I think the last bottom one or two teams were were dropped. And I just remember us being told, you know, you please do well, basically, and and uh, keep the options open for the U.S. entry into the Olympics. And it would, you know, it wouldn't have been us because none of us were citizens at that time. And uh, we had eight days to get ready for Worlds, and we had no ice to practice on. The uniforms that USCA had ready were supposed to be for Lisa and her team. And they didn't really fit us very well. <laughs> I have to tell you. <laughs> but, I mean, they didn't have time to do anything else except get our names on them. We, we wore those uniforms and uh, had USA on our back. And I have to say, I was proud of, I'm proud of that. We were all proud of it. You know, even even though we weren't American citizens at the time, we were very proud to wear the USA on our back. And um, so we had eight days with no ice to practice on, no team practices. Oh, good heavens, no. Who does that? <laughs> I had, I, I truly, I had nightmares for, for that eight days before we went to the Worlds. The Worlds in Winnipeg should have been more of a victory lap for the Houston, Texas team, regardless of what their final record would have been. They finished at the bottom of the standings, going 1-8 with a win over France. In some ways, it was a difficult week. For Janet Hunter, she was out of time off from work and would go to the hotel lobby at 6 a.m. each morning to get work done before heading off to practice or a game. For Maymar, her competitive nature got the best of her and kept her from enjoying the week as much as she wished she would have. But despite this, the team also found ways to revel in the fact that they had accomplished something as spectacular as they had. This was thanks in large part to the fact that the worlds were in Winnipeg, a city with a love of curling that had a lot of curling fans who appreciated what they saw in front of them. You know, everybody in Winnipeg was aware that the world's competition was was going on. It's it's just such a hotbed of curling. And I think somebody mentioned to me that Winnipeg at the time was a city of about 300,000 people. There were more curlers in Winnipeg in 1991 than there were in the, in the United States. So that, that kind of gives you an idea of the focus of curling fans up there. I remember 
going out to eat in Winnipeg restaurants. So we had jackets on that identified us as being the USA champs. And we, we had lots and lots of requests for, for autographs, which had never happened to me before and certainly hasn't happened since. But the funny story I have is when we first were um, there and we were allowed to go out the ice and practice. So we were practicing and we were coming through finished practice and going back through the tunnel. And a friend of mine who's a competitive curler um, was seeing, was there to watch the worlds. And um, he came up to me and said, are you here for the week? And I looked at him and I said, yeah. And then I kept walking. He had no idea that we were the USA team. He had no idea. Dean flew out. He said, I guess I got to go see my mom. She's in the world. So he flew out and he's sitting at the, in the stands and there's this man behind him. And he says, um, boy, look at the age of the skip. Because I was in my early 50s. And Dean turned around to him and said, before you say anything else, that's my mom. So... <laughs> actually I, he made friends with that guy it was quite funny and and dean can tell you i forget the man's name but actually it was quite funny <laughs> and he told me that <laughs> and i just remember thinking i was really glad that the world was in winnipeg because that's such a great curling city and and the fans were wonderful they really were i mean I think they recognized the fact that we were rather out of our league, but they were they were generous and they'd share a good shot. Um, there were some lots of U.S. fans there also. An international event like that, there's general, it's generally pretty good sportsmanship, and um, you know you do your best and hope you're not disgracing yourself too much. I guess that hit us at the opening ceremonies. <laughs> that it, this was this was a huge event. Uh, it was kind of a blur. It's a blur now anyway. Um, but it, it uh, you know, when it's something you're not planning for, you're not shooting for a year in advance, a couple months ahead, and then suddenly you find yourself there, it's uh, pretty overwhelming. The pageantry that went along with the competition, the opening ceremonies, the closing ceremonies were just real special times. Um, the way the teams were introduced. Um, I remember as we were going onto the ice for our next draw, we would be led in single file behind uh, bagpipers, which which was just kind of goosebump time. Um, just a lot of of wonderful experiences. I'm talking to you right now, and I'm getting a little chills up and down my back because I'll I'll tell you we go, but the uh, we you know we just walked in there in this huge arena, and the people, and the opening ceremonies and everything was just mind boggling, absolutely mind boggling, and never ever did I expect to be on the ice, you know it was just it was a real challenge, and of course having no coach that would. Uh, could help you at all, except Al was there, and but he said, you know, this is this is tough, and so on and so forth, and um, so you know that part was hard, and and then it was it was a huge learning curve for me too because I'd never seen anything 
like the ice, for one thing, you know. One of the people that helped us a lot was Steve Brown. Mainly Steve helped us just don't get discouraged. You're here and that's that. The biggest regret about all of this um, experience was that I didn't embrace the moment. I should have just gone and said, okay, you know, we're not going to win this type of thing. Let's just go out and enjoy it. But because I was of the competitive person that I was, I didn't recognize that. And that's, I regret that. I regret that to this day. So when I coach kids, I would, I say to them, don't have the expectations, just go out and enjoy it. After Winnipeg, the team again went its separate ways, and over the years, the touch points between some of them became fewer. They also had vastly different relationships with curling. For lead Brenda Gray, Worlds in 1991 was the last time she curled. She hung up her broom so she could care for her young family. She now lives in Denton, Texas. Second, Janet Hunter was a founding member of the Lone Star Curling Club in Austin, Texas, where she still resides. Her last competitive curling took place in 1996 when she was on a team that qualified for USA's Mixed Curling National Championships, which features teams made up of two men and two women. She stopped playing league games at Lone Star Curling Club three years ago, but says that once she retires, she'll consider a return to curling. Vice skip Judy Johnston now lives in Calgary, Alberta. She and Maymar are still good friends and stay in touch regularly. Maymar Gimmel stayed active in the sport of curling until a couple of years ago. She again became Canadian senior champion in 1993. Maymar was also instrumental in the creation of the Northern Ontario Curling Association and was inducted into the Curling Canada Hall of Fame in 2009. She and her husband, Al, now live in Blind River, Northern Ontario. It's fitting that she lives in Blind River. It's the town where Neil Young famously broke down that inspired his song, Long May You Run. And while that song is literally about a car, it can also be interpreted as being about the people who may enter your life for a brief period of time, but enrich it to the point that your stories can't be told without each other. Since the Houston team's journey to Winnipeg, a lot has changed in the curling world. The sport officially became part of the Olympic program in 1998, and now players have to be eligible to play for the U.S. and the Olympics to play in nationals. More open eligibility and a regional playdown format now exists in USA Curling's club national championships that doesn't lead to a Worlds. The playoff format has also been changed at the U.S. national championships. Now, instead of the winner of the round robin going directly to the final, they have instituted a page playoff where first plays second, third plays fourth, and then the loser of the 1-2 game gets a second chance in the semifinal against the winner of a three versus four. The conversation around changing the format increased after Texas's victory in 1991. With its entry into the Olympics, curling has become more professional. In 1991, nearly every curler had a full-time job. Now, professional curlers exist, and some countries, including the United States, have full-time curlers who are part of a national high-performance program. The members of Team Texas are all in agreement that the evolution of the sport means a story like theirs isn't likely to happen again. The countries that are curling now are pretty well organized. There's a lot more 
you know, good coaching and a lot more knowledge as far as nutrition and training and all that stuff. And throwers are better athletes now than we were then. So, no, I I don't think that that – I don't think lightning is going to strike twice, let me put it that way. The curling sport has grown so much, and the regulations have changed. There isn't an opportunity for an outlier like our Houston team to – come from nowhere and go to nationals. The curling has really got two levels. They've got uh, the elite level and then the other level. And so for a team like ours to walk into, say, a national final, I just couldn't see happening. The way teams train now and with their with their um, plan of um, staying fit in the off season, how they work out with their, with their sports psychologist and with all the stuff that goes along. I mean, it's, it's hard work staying in that competitive elite level. And a lot of people, I think just haven't got the time or can't afford to do it. It was quite a journey. I I have to say, and uh, I don't think, we never, I never say never, but I don't think there'll be any team like ours that will get to where we got again. The game's changed. The game's totally changed. The lasting legacy of this phenomenal team isn't a changed playoff format at the national championships. It's much more than that. It's the impact they made on curling in the United States and the South. They showed people who curled on skating ice in warm climates that they could reach for the stars. And they showed the traditional curling territories in the U.S. that the South should be looked at as a legitimate option to expand the sport. I think the one thing we did for curling, I hope we made a contribution, and that is that we we showed the North that there's curling in the South. And I think that we might have inspired a lot of other wannabe curlers or former curlers in places like Texas and other warm states to form a club. And the sport has grown so much in the 30 years since then that I just like to think that we opened the door for others and showed them that, yes, you can curl when it's 80 degrees outside. They've created so many more fans in the United States and so many opportunities to open new clubs I, I heard at one point, I think a few years ago, that there were so many clubs that wanted to get started that they couldn't produce enough sets of rocks to equip all the different clubs that wanted to open in the States. And there was like a two or three year backlog on getting sets of rocks over here. And I imagine that's why arena curling has taken off because you know, a lot of these clubs are just getting started and they and they don't have the, the facility to have dedicated curling ice. Curling on skating ice has been a big part of the growth of the sport in the United States. Leagues have formed in places like Oklahoma, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, and Virginia. They're so numerous that there is now a USA Curling Arena National Championship. There will eventually come a day where a curler or team of curlers who were introduced to the sport in one of these clubs, dons a Team USA jersey at the World Championships or in Olympics. There's a chance they may have been inspired to try the sport by the team that won gold at the 2018 Olympics. But they will also continue a legacy that connects them to Maymar, Judy, Janet, 
Brenda, and their team that started at a shopping mall and wound up sharing the ice with the world's best at the summit of the curling world. Jonathan and I would like to thank the following people for helping to make this episode happen. First, the players on the 1991 team for taking the time and finding the means to talk to us for recorded interviews. Maymar Gimmel, Judy Johnston, Janet Hunter, and Brenda Gray, you lived this, and we just hope we did justice to your amazing story. We would also like to thank Carl Shaper from the Curling Club of Houston, Darren Henley from the Lone Star Curling Club, Jenna Martin from USA Curling, and Dean and Al Gimmel for their help in contacting the players and researching this project. Dean is Maymar's son and won his own USA Curling Championship in 2012. I can't imagine there are many mother-son combinations that can make the same claim. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond. If you enjoyed this show, we ask that you please leave a review or tell a friend about us. Your referrals to friends and family are the greatest compliment we can ever receive, and it's what allows us to grow our show and share our love of this great game. You can find all of our past shows and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. If you have a question or comment, you can reach out to us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Want to see footage from the 1991 Houston team's journey to Worlds? Head over to the Rocks Across the Pond YouTube channel. Alan Maymar were nice enough to send over nearly two hours of footage that we were able to upload. Just search for Rocks Across the Pond on YouTube or click on the link in the show notes. Thank you again for taking the time to listen, and we will talk to you again real soon.